from the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now what would you, what name would you give to Jesus if you were asked to give him a name or what title would you give him? Probably some of you would call him the Savior and you would be correct, the healer, um, teacher, friend. Uh, in your mind you're probably thinking of names or titles that others have given him. You might not give him the title, but he deserves the title of revolutionary. The greatest, most revolutionary person who has ever lived was Jesus of Nazareth. And he began a revolution that is recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a, a New Testament history book. It's a book of history on the having been dones of the Holy Spirit and the, and the revolution that Jesus began. And it records the events of uh, a revolution that, has, that was begun but has not ended. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts is the only book in the, in the Bible that is incomplete, it's not finished. You and I are still writing the book of Acts. Now the revolutionary who began the events recorded in the book of Acts is called or named the shepherd of our souls and the lily of the valley. Strange name to give a revolutionary. And I think to understand how he could have such a name and, and begin such a revolution, you'd have to understand what kind of revolution he began. Now the book of Acts begins address tells us to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to a man named Theopolis. This man was, some suggest, a Roman official. The book was written by a physician by the name of Luke. He is the author of the third gospel. And he begins this book by saying that he has already written one book concerning what Jesus began to do and to teach before he was taken up from us. And that phrase, before he was taken up from us, is a reference to the ascension of our Lord. You may not know this little bit of trivia, but the Gospel of Luke is the only Gospel that ends with the ascension. And when we talk about what Jesus came to do, we talk about his incarnation, his sinless life, his vicarious death at Calvary, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and his return to earth. And we leave out a, a strategic aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus, and that is the ascension of Christ. Luke talks about his ascension in the book of Luke, chapter 24. And this book of Acts, this record of this event, talks about this last event that Jesus had with his disciples. That's how Luke begins his, his book. And he meets with these men upon whom he has placed the burden of the revolution. Now, this is a strange scene and a strange account. For you have this revolution that's going to change the world that is begun by a man named Lily. I mean, now, now that's, that's pretty strange. And the men who are going to be the, the 
bearers of the revolution are these ragtags that have been walking around with him for three and a half years. They are basically unintelligent men. They have some basic uh, common sense, but they're not trained, and they're not political, and they don't belong to no political party. They really don't have much going for them, except for the fact that they've been walking around the country with this man for three and a half years, and this man has been molding and shaping and honing their lives for this revolution. But the impetus of the revolution is a remarkable one, and he mentions it in verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Now that would set me on fire if I'd been there. And he refers to the fact that this Jesus was crucified after having suffered this ignominious death. And he was buried, and now he presents himself alive. That would be a good reason to start a revolution. And he appeared to these men with convincing proofs of the fact that he was alive. Uh, I listen to these uh, talk shows when I'm out in a car driving, you know, from place to place. Now, there's some real weird folks out there, and before Easter Sunday, they had this guy on uh, in this talk show talking about he was an Episcopal uh, priest in New York City. And he, was, he has written a book in which he was, uh, uh, presents the fallacies of the, of the resurrection. And he was talking about the fact that really that, you know, that there, is a, there is convincing proof that Jesus did not die, or did not, was not raised from the dead. Um, and, and so they debated about this. Some people called in, you know, Christians calling in and challenging. He had all these answers, and they just they went back and forth. And I thought, man, oh, that's a real exercise in futility. You know, you either accept what this says or you don't. I mean, he appeared to them in convincing proofs, convincing enough that these basic, uh, unintelligent men began a revolution that has not ended. And he spent 40 days with these guys, 11 listeners. And he has this kind of a 40-day seminar in which he presents to them the fact that he is passing the baton on to them and that what he has come to do and why he came to suffer and all of it was involved, he is passing that on to them. And he talked to them about the fact that in his kingdom, this revolution was going to be a revolution that began in the heart and that this world was literally going to be changed as the result of a change of the heart. Now, if you want to turn sometimes to the book of Acts, on further in the 17th chapter, these people who are part of this New Testament church are spoken of as those who are turning the world upside down. And these men, so convinced that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead, had, had initiated this revolution that began with a change in the heart of man. Now some have asked, why did it take 40 days, you know, for Jesus to convince these people that he was alive? I don't think he was taking 40 days to convince them that he was alive. It took him 40 days to convince them what kind of revolution they were to begin. 
I mean, these guys are slow learners. And their idea was that when Jesus, when Messiah came, he would lead a revolution against Rome. He did not lead a revolution against the government. He did not say anything about taking up arms. What he did say was that render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what he talked about was the fact that when man became convinced that he was dead and alive from the dead, that something would happen on the inside of them that could not be quenched and stopped. A revolution beginning in the heart. Now, after he has commanded them and convinced them about the revolution, he gives them some strange orders. He says, go back to Jerusalem and, and wait. Have you ever um, seen that uh, dialogue of uh, Bill Cosby's called The Coach? Have you ever seen that? <laughs> some of you are shaking your head, yes. It's this hilarious dialogue of this coach giving his locker room speech before a big game. And he's got these guys revved up, you know, and, and he's you know, trying to get them convinced to go out there and win one for the coach. And they are revved up to a, to a fever pitch. They're growling and snarling in the locker room. And then he says, okay, guys, go get them for the coach. And somebody has accidentally locked the door. They can't get out. Now, that's a real, uh, you know, what a letdown. So, so Jesus has these guys all revved up about the fact that he's alive and they're going to change the world. Then he says, now I want you to go back to Jerusalem and do nothing. And what a letdown. What's he, what in the world is going on there? I want you to turn back quickly to the 14th chapter of the book of John, and I'll show you what he's taught, what's happening here. And I want to read verses 16 and 26, and then I want to turn one page and read verse 26 of chapter 15. So we got 14, chapter 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Underline the word helper. He will give you another of the same kind. He will give you another who is just like me. He's going to help you in this revolution. Another helper. That he may be with you forever. Now he identifies this other helper in verse 26. But the helper, comma, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. All right, so you got the helper, and the helper is the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me say parenthetically, just put that on pause just a minute. That word helper is an interesting word. It means to, to call alongside of one, and it's a picture of somebody going down a road in this direction. And as he walks down the road in this direction, he's conscious of somebody approaching him from the opposite direction, coming toward him to meet him. And as they meet together in the juncture of their meeting, the person who has been coming toward him turns and begins to walk with him in the same direction he's been heading or the rest of the way down the road. That's the idea of the helper. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to send another just like me who is going to intersect your life at the critical juncture. We'll see that juncture in a moment. And he's going to be with you the rest of the journey. Now I want you to turn verse chapter 15, verse 26, show you something interesting here. He says, when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father. Now, um, you, you scholars, you, you, you bright persons, both of you, 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 you guys who are really with it. Now, you don't have to be a nuclear scientist to catch on what's happening here. In chapter 14, he said, The Father will send the, the Helper in my name. In chapter 15, verse 26, this is what he says. He says, I will send him to you from the Father. Now, what does that say about where Jesus is now? He's with the Father. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. When I get back to the Father... I'm going to send this helper I promised you and he will be with you for the rest of the journey. And it's a reference to the fact that when he ascends to heaven to the right hand of the Father, he's going to send the other helper back to us. Okay, now back to the book of Acts chapter 1. Most of us are waiting for something to happen. I, I was reading um, a little um, deal from some... Uh, magazine where a sociologist did a little survey and said that most folks are waiting for something. They're waiting to get out of school, they're waiting to, uh, uh, the kids get grown, they're waiting for retirement, they're waiting for that better job. Most of us are waiting on something. And even though waiting is the simplest thing to do, it is the most difficult thing to do. I don't know whether you have a hard time with it or not, but I have a hard time waiting on anything or anybody. There's a new way to get to the hospital at TMC. You go on that, that, around that new bypass and, it, and, you, and you take a left and head down that uh, lake road. You, you know what I'm talking about? But there's a railroad track down there. Now, somewhere, these guys are watching me and, and they, are, uh, they see me leave Durant and the trains go, start. And they, the trains start and they, they just kind of keep an eye on me, and just as I head down Luke Road toward TMC, they start crossing down there, and then they stop. <laughs> I mean, it is a monstrous wait. So the other day, I, I was in a big-time hurry, and I came down there, and the, and, the, and, the, and the train was there, and it looked like it had been there for about six weeks. There was no activity, no movement at all. So I said, now, rats on this. And so I turned around in the middle of the road and I went back up to the, to the bypass and came on down the old highway, on the old way, and as I went screaming out to the lake road, I looked back down the train was gone. I mean, you know, or, or beat me past. I hate to wait. Waiting is not something that everybody likes. What if you had to wait 40 days? Come on, give me a break. How about a month? How about a... How about a year? How about a lifetime? How about 40 years in the wilderness waiting on God to send you back to Egypt? And so he's out there with these disciples and they're, they're waiting for something to happen, sends them to Jerusalem and tells them to wait. And they're waiting for that crucial moment when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Ah, in the remaining part of this chapter, there are four contrasts, now watch this, concerning implications, concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit and His part in the revolution. Number one, first contrast, found in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. First contrast, write it down. 
the coming of the Holy Spirit is not symbolical but reality. It is not a symbol but a reality. Now he said, you have seen baptism. In fact, some of them obviously had seen his own baptism, John's baptism of him. We are witnesses tonight, or witnesses tonight of a baptism. And this young man understands, we went over it together in my office last Thursday. And, and you understand that baptism symbolizes something. The baptism of Jesus was a symbol. We won't get into the, what it symbolized. A dove came down symbolizing the presence of God and the anointing of God upon his life. But the coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that is symbolical or figurative. It is reality. The fact is that the same Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit has come now to you. That needs to get a hold of us somehow. In the words of Augustine, Oh, oh, dost thou not know that thou, carry, thou dost carry around God with you? Do you not know that you have living within you the very God of very God, not in symbolical sense, but in reality? For Jesus is no dead fact, stranded on the shores of the oblivious years, but warm, sweet, tender even yet, for faith has its Galilee and love its Olivet. The healing of his seamless robe is by our beds of pain. We touch him in the throng and press, and we are whole again. The fact is, is that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he came in the reality of His presence, not in the symbolism of it. All right, number two. The coming of the Holy Spirit and His activity in the revolution is not a program, but a power. Now look at verses 6 through 8. And so when they had come together, they were asking Him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word power there, you've heard it so many times, it's redundant. It's the word dunamis. It means dynamic. It's not the word dynamite. We get the word dynamite from that. But it is a word that means the dynamic of God's power and God's presence in a person's life. You have sensed the dynamic of God in others, and maybe there have been times when you have sensed the dynamic of God in your own life. Um, uh, let me see if I can uh, remind us of something, of times when you've come to church and you've walked into a building it's been the, it's the same building, same people, but there's something different. There was a dynamic that was, was earth-shaking and, and, and touching and moving and changing. Go up to preach at McLeod Prison, walk in that little chapel, hear those guys sing, let some of our guys go give a testimony and sit there and sense the dynamic of God there. And this dynamic 
that He makes available to us that is ours is a dynamic that changes lives and changes uh, hearts. Number three, we are not promoters. The Holy Spirit comes upon us in this revolutionary event that not that we would be promoters of a, of, of, a, of a church or a way or a system, but that we be witnesses. The word is, you're not going to like this, the word is martyreos. It means martyrdom. And it is the witness that involves the giving of one's life to it's more than just telling something that you know from your head through your lips. It is the giving of one's life. Martyrdom comes from that word. I, uh, I remember hearing a guy give his testimony in the First Baptist Church of Eulis. He was a uh, former missionary, and he was talking about these, um, the underground church in Red China before, the, um, before China opened up to the West. During, during the uh, purge and uh, Mao Zedong's uh, revolution. And he said there was this underground church that existed in China. You couldn't meet uh, in, a, in a church, but they did meet. And, and they, had a, they had rules in, in uh, the government. The government had, the Red Guard had rules, three rules concerning public meetings. No more than 10 people could meet in an assembly together at a time. No person could meet at the same place more than twice. In other words, you could come to morning service and night service here, but you never could come back. And no two people could meet together more than once. In other words, the people that are here tonight could never meet together again. That were their rules concerning of assembly. And they had people that and the underground church that scheduled their meetings, and they, they did it secretly, and they would move about the believers in the underground church to, to share where the public meeting was and keeping a record of who had been there and who had not, and etc. And if the Red Guard found out these people that were scheduling the meetings, these informants, and put them to death, I mean immediately, it wasn't even trial. And when he was sharing that testimony, somebody, some wag said, kind of chuckled and said, I bet it was a hard, hard to find guys who would who'd schedule the meetings. And the missionary said, with a, almost a, an indignant anger in his voice, he said, you're crazy, man. We have a waiting list of people who want to be a part of that. I shared that with a friend of mine one time. He said, yeah, folks were lining up to die, weren't they? That's what they were. And what, what is found in the book of Acts is this, is that something happens because of our relationship to Jesus Christ that makes it an honor, almost a privilege, to to die for, the, for, for Jesus Christ, at least to live for Him. And we're not promoters of a, of, a, of a creed or a system or a church. We're not to be that. 
We are to be martyrs, that is, the giving of our lives to Christ's cause. All right, number four. It is a, it is a revolution. It, 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 it encompasses everybody. It's not restricted, but universal. Now look at what it says. But you shall be my witnesses both in Jerea, J- Jerusalem, Jerea, Jerusalem, and in Judea, that's the, that's the county, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. In Christ there is no east or west, in Him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole water. A few weeks ago, um, we had in our church building here, in a meeting, the Russian pastor that was supposed to uh, uh, preach for us around Christmas and had to go back to Russia. And uh, I don't know when I've ever been in a, in, a me- in a place, in a meeting, where I was more touched than that night. Mark was there. And, I mean, it was just absolutely mind-boggling what this man told. Um, in Russia... In, on Christmas Day, 1991, Nick, uh, uh, Gorbachev resigned as the president of the Soviet Union. And for the first time, the flag of the hammer and sickle was, was, was lowered and church bells began to ring in Moscow. Up until that time, there had been as many as 50,000 priests and nuns murdered, martyred. And lay martyrs ran into the numbers of millions. But when that red, that's the, the flag of the, of the hammer and sickle came down and church bells began to chime in Red Square, as many as 70 million Christians came out into the open. Now you tell me, that's not exciting. And I heard this Russian pastor say, that he believed that there are two reasons why that the, that the gospel uh, wasn't defeated and, and the church wasn't destroyed in Russia. One was is because the Christians in Russia never turned their back on Jesus. They never turned their back on Jesus. And the second reason, he said, is because Christians were praying for us around the world. Now the good news of the revolution is is that it includes all men in the four corners of the earth. Now there are people tonight fleeing out of Central Africa. Some of those people are missionaries. I understand that there are hundreds of missionaries who've had to flee from that country that is going through that revolt, and that, uh, that purging. And in places all over the world tonight, uh, places we've never even heard of, most of them we can't even pronounce. They're godly men and women who are hanging in there and they understand that they have come to know Jesus Christ and this gospel just as we have because the good news of this is that even though we come to a comfortable place and we're not threatened, this gospel is every man's gospel. It's universal in its scope. Now, the question. I'll get into the question. The question is this. Why do you stand gazing in the heavens? Why do you stand, verse 10, 
Why are you gazing intently into the sky? While he was departing, behold, two men, white clothing, stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Why are you gazing into the heavens? Now, let me ask you, you of course you believe it. Do you believe that Jesus came the first time? Yes, you believe it is. That's right. Some of you may not, but uh, think about it a little bit. I mean, that's, some, that's most documented. I mean, even, even a, a, an infidel believes that Jesus came the first time. Do you believe that he was taken up into heaven? Well, where is his body if he wasn't taken up, taken up into heaven? They've never been able to present his body. His enemies have not. All that anybody would have ever had to do was just present the body of Jesus and the myth would have been dispelled. They were not able to present his body. So he must have been taken up into heaven. Third, do you believe that he is coming back in bodily form as he was on earth the first time? You believe that? Okay. Two of you do. Okay. The rest of you may be thinking about it or something else you may be thinking about, and that's what scares me. Okay. Now, he is coming back, the same Jesus who was here on earth is coming back in bodily form. That's eschatology. That's the culmination of history. That's where the line of history is moving, toward that great event somewhere on the timeline when Jesus returns. Now, when he is coming back, nobody knows Forget it. Nobody knows. What you do know, and I know, is, is that it's getting closer and closer every day we live. That if he was here the first time, and he was taken up, he is coming back at a time when we know not, but what we do know is that he is coming back, his coming is closer than it was yesterday. Now, what am I supposed to be doing in the interim? I mean, I am... They're, they're, stop gazing into heaven and get on with the business of, of proclaiming his, the, the good news. There's too much to be done, too many seeking answers, too many searching for hope, too many living in darkness, not to be involved in this marvelous, marvelous proclamation of the good news. Now, there is an application I want to give right quickly because I believe that everybody ought to have a little hope before they leave. Your hope is I'll be through pretty quick. Well, I want to give you a little hope to take home with you. Four points. Number one, concerning history. Now, now concerning the future, let me read verse 7 again. It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Point number one, we know little about the future. I wish I could tell you how many of you would be here next year this very night. Can't do it. I wish I had that kind of ability to prophesy. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
you don't know if you're going to be here next year or not. I mean, the fact is, some of you uh, are somebody you love the dearest, may be gone this time next year. I mean, it would shock us. It would scare us if we did know the future, probably. I'm glad that I have not known from year to year what lies ahead. I mean, there is so much about tomorrow we do not know. We know the sun's going to come up in the east if it comes up. And we're going to have 24 hours in the day if we have a day. That's about all we know. All right, number two. The hands in which the future are, is kept are safe hands. You've seen that little uh, Sears, Sears uh, commercial? You're in good hands? Let me show you the hands. Look at this. He says, the times are fixed in the Father's authority. And what that means is this, is that even though you and I have no clue about the future, what we do know is that the future is fixed in the Father's authority. The Father's authority. And we may not know the future, but we know who controls the future. And if we know who controls the future, that helps us endure the scary stuff. Number three, concerning the future, you will have sufficient strength to face it. Now, I've told this to many people, and, and they just not in agreement because I'm not telling them anything they don't know is that what we think about tomorrow, we think about tomorrow and we think, I will not be able to bear what I might have to bear tomorrow. I don't believe if this certain thing happened in the future, I could bear that. I don't think I could stand it, endure it. But when they get to that moment, they find that they can. That's called the daily grace of God. It's, it's God providing the grace when the grace is needed. Now, whatever else is, whatever is out there in the future, I can make you this promise. By the authority that's fixed in His hands, you will have sufficient strength for it. You will be adequate for it. Although now, it, it seems like you won't. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, great. All right, number four. We have a duty concerning the future. Now, the, the, the duty that we have concerning the future is, number one, to stop focusing on things that don't really matter. Now, to these guys, it was like, where can I put it on the chart that Jesus is going to come back? That doesn't matter. But for us, it may be something else upon which we are focusing is really peripheral. It's really insignificant. Stop messing around, spending your time and your energy and your focus on stuff that doesn't really matter. What really matters is God's plan for your life. That is, a plan of ministry and witnessing and serving. And what we have our responsibility to the future is, is to do, continue what Jesus began to do. Here's the remarkable thing he promised. 
he said that the things that I did, you will be able to do. And greater than those things that I did, you'll be able to do. What he said was, you live your life under the control of this helper, and you will equal and exceed my works. Now you take that home with you and chew on it while you're watching TV. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the great teaching of your word that applies, that helps us to apply truth to daily live, wisdom to daily life. Help us to live these principles out tomorrow. We're asking Jesus' name. Now, I want to ask you tonight, it might be some of you who, someone who would like to make public a decision for Jesus Christ. Um, maybe you need to come as this young lad came this morning and confess your faith in the Lord and, and follow up on baptism or maybe you want to join our fellowship put your life in the disciplines of a church community to become a part of, a, of the ministry of a church body perhaps to rededicate yourself to Christ whatever God leads you to do we, we'd encourage you to always stand to sing